Hi, welcome to Shoe Speak HR. Um, this is the second episode of our Back to Basics podcast. I, Andy Graham, am joined by Amy Anderson and Amy Leach today. Hi, Amy's. Hello. Hi. So, for the avid listeners, you will be aware that we previously touched upon onboarding and um, what what we're looking to do with these back to basics refresher podcasts is just to look at some what are often considered basic topics um and and i think you know kind of the danger of calling them too basic or referring to them is you kind of undervalue the importance of, of getting these things right so you know kind of one of the reasons we're doing this is 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 to kind of let newbies in their hr world know you know kind of what how how serious these issues are and the importance of getting them right but equally just to to remind more experienced um people um that sometimes these these areas which which we consider to be you know kind of really straightforward do have nuances do have complications and things do change so we're going to look at employment contracts today so um Amy Leach, do you want to start us off on on the importance of them? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll probably go right back to basics with this um, and talk about Section 1 compliance. So employers have um, a statutory obligation under Section 1 of the Employment Rights Act 1996 um, to provide employees with um, key particulars in writing that relate to their employment. So there was kind of, a, I always refer to this as kind of the original Section 1 particulars, and then there were some new ones as well um, introduced in April 2020. And since April 2020, when the additional particulars um, joined the original ones, it actually became a day one right for an employee to receive this Section 1 statement as such. So I suppose some of, and again, as you said, Andy, kind of back to basics, it's a nice refresher, and I'm sure many of our listeners are probably can recite these off the top of their head. Um, in terms of what Section 1 information includes. But just to kind of recap a couple of examples, it will be really basic things like names of the employer and the employee, uh, the date that employment began, rate of pay and frequency, holiday entitlement, uh, notice, job title, place of work, all those really core bits of information, basically, that would go into your employment contract. And then from April 2020, a couple of those additional particulars um, which are now required to be in the contract as well, are things like training entitlement, um, other paid leave aside from holiday and sick leave, and also benefits. Um, interestingly, contractual ones, but also non-contractual ones that apply to the employment. I suppose, okay, there's an obligation to include all of this information, but what are the consequences if an employer doesn't comply properly with Section 1? Um, I, I would always say to an extent, this is probably quite low risk, if employers haven't got a full Section 1 statement um, with their employees. Technically, an employee can't bring a freestanding claim in the tribunal for failure to provide a written Section 1 statement, but if they are able to bring a separate successful claim, such as unfair dismissal in the tribunal, and they can show that they were not provided with a compliant Section 1 statement, they may be awarded an additional two to four weeks pay um, as compensation. But it is worth noting that this is um, subject to the weekly statutory cap. So it wouldn't be necessarily gross pay unless their gross pay is below that, that statutory cap. Um, so the financial penalty is quite small. Um, but I would just say, I suppose a word of warning is if you've got a large workforce and all of their contracts are not compliant or some don't even have a contract in place, um, and they all bring claims or a large proportion of them bring other claims 
um, which are successful in the tribunal, um, it could be that they latch on this breach of section one to that. So that in that instance, it could be quite a costly um, experience for an employer if that happens. So I suppose it's just checking that your employment contracts, one, that you have them in place with employees and two, that they are um, compliant with section one. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Amy. Whenever I do diligence, I think this is the number one area where you are flagging that there is non-compliance. Like you say, it's not often a huge risk and it's not often, you know, kind of a huge risk in terms of claims and, and the compensation you may have to, to pay out. But, you know, kind of we call this session back to basics and yet, you know, kind of lots and lots of diligence throws up that there are organisations out there that, that just simply don't have basic section one compliant written terms and conditions so yeah it's, it's something that's worth keeping your eye on as a, as an employer to make sure you are on top of that um amy anderson any hot tips from you in terms of employment contracts hot tips for me well i did read the little like um agenda that amy put together and was like i have to talk about confidentiality and post-termination restrictions and I'm just thinking, like, from a back to basics point of view, there is so much to cover in that. And if people are expecting me to tell them exactly what to write in their post-termination restrictions in this slot, um, I think I wish I could do that because I'd I'd be I'd be rich if I could. Um, so yeah, in terms of confidentiality and post-termination restrictions, I think these are from a post-termination restriction point of view. It's um, giving consideration as to actually which of your employees you need to put post-termination restrictions in their contracts of employment. So when we're talking about post-termination restrictions, we're talking about things such as non-compete clauses, which say that the employee after they've left your employment can't go and work for a competitor for a set period of time. Um, potentially also talking about non-solicitation clauses, so you can't go and poach particular customers or clients for a particular period of time. Um, again, non-dealing clauses are similar to non-solicitation clauses, but Strictly speaking, non-dealing prevents both the employee going to approach the the potential customer client, whoever it is that he's protecting, as well as vice versa. So the client, customer, etc., approaching them with a view to doing business. And then I think the other most common one is probably the non-poaching of employees clause. So if you leave an organisation, you then can't try and take half your team with you within a certain period of time. So that's typically what we're talking about when we're talking about post-termination restrictions. And the reason why I suppose post-termination restrictions get so much coverage when it comes to discussions about contracts of employment is because they can be difficult to enforce. So it's not the case that when you're drafting a post-termination restriction, you can just go, yes, you can't do X, Y, Z for 12 months, regardless of, say, the seniority of the employee or anything like that. The post-termination restrictions really do have to be tailored to the employee whose contract which they are in. Um, and long story short, in order to be enforceable, the post-termination restriction needs to go no further than is reasonably necessary to protect a legitimate business interest. So, for example, if you're talking about um, not an in, preventing an employee from from stealing client, clients and customers after they've left your employment, is thinking about things of, well, how long would it take their replacement to build up the relationship with these people? How long, realistically, do we need for them no longer to be a threat? to the business and t tailoring the length of the restriction for that for that period of time and thinking about how are we going to define the clients and customers that we need to protect this person from 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 approaching from having any contact with after they've left so it, i suppose there, there is kind of an art and a lot to think about when you're doing post-termination restrictions so i think for the for the purposes of a, of, of a back to basic lesson i think the best that i can give you on this 
is don't just put in a standard post-termination restriction for all your employees. Tailor it to the specific employee. Think about think about what the risks are. Think about really what the level of protection that you need is and, and take it from there rather than just going blanket across the board because blanket across the board, you do you do really risk um, those, those restrictions being unenforceable and therefore not giving you any protection at all. Because I suppose what I should also add is that if you get to the stage of wanting to enforce these, um, the court won't go, oh, well, actually, six months is too long. A restriction will give you four. If six is too long, six is too long. And therefore, it's kind of crossed out the contracts altogether. So I think that's the, that's the most coverage I can give post-termination restrictions in terms of the the, bit, the key bits to be aware of. Um, confidentiality is probably more relevant across the board to, to all employees. And I would expect to see standardly even in the most junior of contracts. And that's just to ensure that people are keeping company confidential information confidential. But in a similar way to post-termination restrictions, it is, it is always worth giving some some thought as to how you are defining confidential information in your contract or employment and just making sure it's really clear to the employee what their obligations are and what, as a business, you consider is confidential information. So when you're giving examples in your definition of confidential information, you're covering off all the key parts that are relevant to the business in which you, you're working. Yeah, I think that's really, really helpful to to flag those issues, Amy. And I'd like you say to to get all that into a snippet for a podcast. You've you've done well. I think the challenge for lots of organisations is when they're entering into these contracts, they're not wanting to look to the end of the contract. They're not they're not envisaging the relationship turning sour. Um, you know, so that's you know, and and I completely get that. I understand that. Um, the challenge is for for us lawyers, we know only too well and, and probably see more of it than most when that relationship has turned sour, when the gloves are off, when somebody is leaving, you know, kind of the divorce has happened, um, you know, so, and and then isn't the time to then be able to, to kind of get in, it's get your true. ducks in a row. It, it's, it's so important to, think, to do that early up front work. Yeah, I agree. And I think sometimes that when, when you have clients that, that, that call and go, I went into business with my best mate and we did it and you go, have you got any documents? And they're like, well, no, because at the point at which they were going into that venture, it was all super exciting. Um, they thought it was going to last forever. It was going to be an amazing venture. And, and and I always feel like such a pessimist when people are like, oh, no, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And you say, if you've got your shareholders agreement, if you've got your employment contracts and they say, oh, no. And then you have to list off all the things that could potentially go wrong at this really exciting time for them. But it's, it's definitely worth doing because it, you can't, you can't get the opportunity back, can you, when it comes to the... Can't. And, and the, the other thing I always kind of flag to my clients is when, when we're talking about this is that now is also the time that individuals are most likely to sign up to these things, um, you know, because they, they want the relationship to get off to a good start as well. And, you know, so they don't want to necessarily rock the boat. So, you know, kind of having those restrictions, making sure they're appropriate, you know, kind of they, there is no better time than, than at the beginning of the relationship. So... Yeah. Although I will say on restrictions, Andy, that as people progress through the organisation, you should you should revisit them every time they get promoted. So I know that wasn't yeah. So just absolutely. That, I was like, there's more. I, I'm just like, there's so much more I can say about restrictions. <laughs> I'll stop talking now. Um, and I guess kind of a nice um, follow on from that is just to consider the the payment in lieu of notice provisions as well, because the the reason these are often important is obviously. There are circumstances where employers want to get employees out of the business um, relatively quickly, um, and a payment in lieu of notice 
allows for that. Individuals often like it as well because they're getting a big lump sum up front. But um, having a payment in lieu of notice provision within your contract does allow to getting an individual out of the business without there being any kind of gross misconduct or other summary termination um, offence having been committed. Um, but the contract not being breached um, and then the importance of the contract not being breached is Go back to goes back to yeah. <laughs> restrictive covenants. Um, because if, if you just dismiss somebody wrongfully or unlawfully without giving them proper notice, um, and, and that would constitute paying somebody in lieu of notice where there isn't a contractual provision to do so, um, you as an organisation are in breach of contract. And what that end result is, is that those restrictive covenants then fall away um, and give the individual carte blanche to, to go off, compete, you know, kind of to, to look to solicit your clients, customer bases, to look to take any colleagues with them that you may want to. So, yeah, again, just important that, that you have that in there. Um, and, and the added bonus often is, um, again, when, when getting an individual to enter into a contract, they're less likely to to argue too much about the exit provisions. And it may well be that you can include um, a provision that indicates that only basic pay will be paid during that payment in lieu of notice. So you won't have to pay any additional benefits, you know, kind of whether that's your, your private healthcare or car allowances or uh, pension contributions, you know, all those kind of additional benefits will, wouldn't have to be paid. So that, that would be a saving to the business in itself. So, um, so again, guys, I think we've, we've, we've talked about a real back to basics topic in terms of employment contracts and then thrown up all sorts for our listeners to to think about um we are not doing this deliberately to to scare people we are just trying to counter through what are and can sometimes be key issues for organizations to think about when when entering into employment contracts so um thank you for listening as ever any any feedback at all including on on any you know topics that you want us to to cover by way of a refresher or just generally um, do get in touch shoespeakhr at shoesmiths.co.uk um, but thank you both Amy's thanks both bye bye and we'll look forward to seeing you all or probably not seeing you all talking to you all in the not too distant future thanks and bye <laughs> <laughs>